Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday 13th of August 2017. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial or you can have a listen from our website www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue where you'll find a number of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic's Aquaculture Program and Marine Care Point Cook and today's weather uh, in one word, wow, um, um, it looks like spring is in the air in Melbourne. Um, 18 degrees, the forecast top temperature today. Uh, sunny with increasing cloud. There's about a 5% chance of rain, and if it does come along, it's going to be about a millimetre, enough to wet the dust, and that's about it. Wind is building a little bit. Um, it's uh, north-northeaster, um, coming in at about 30 kilometres an hour. So as usual, if you're uh, if you're out and about on our beautiful Port Phillip Bay or other waterways within the state of Victoria, please exercise due care. I mean, very, very windy lately, some very uh, ferocious winds, and it's worth noting that they can sometimes whip up very, very quickly. We had some uh, unfortunate news yesterday from uh, Williamstown where there was a kayaker that um, had uh, unfortunately capsized, ended up in the water, and as a result of that ended up with some hypothermia, um, thankfully listed as stable, so um, in hospital for observation, presumably, just to make sure it was okay, so that's had a happy ending. Not so a couple of weeks ago where, unfortunately, there was uh, a Japanese guy, I believe, who went missing off Altona and his kayak was found at Edith Vale, so it's blown right across the bay. Um, the search for him was called off, um, so that's got a very grim ending written all over it, unfortunately. So not a good situation, so of course, as, as usual, be very, very careful if you're out and about in the bay. Okay, so what have we got lined up for today's show? Well, uh, unless you've been living under a rock this week, there's been something uh, pretty interesting in the news, um, and it's reared its somewhat ugly head in Port Phillip Bay, and I'm talking about scavengers, um, a very, very interesting topic. These things are near and dear to my heart because I used to study them at uh, university for a while as part of my honours project on a, on a particular critter that I'll introduce you to a little bit later on. Anyway, uh, that's what's coming up after the break. 
able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And of course, that was a little bit of the Jaws music from uh, from John Williams. Okay, uh, just wanted to talk a little bit today about scavengers. Um, as I was saying, during the week, uh, there was a very interesting situation. Just a little recap. Um, a young man, um, only 16 years of old, by the name of Sam Canizé, uh, he's been uh, playing football. He starts feeling a bit sore in the legs, of course, after the match with the big lactic acid build-up and all those sort of things. And then, of course, he uh, emulates his heroes to an extent and uh, and does the wise thing, goes into the water just to cool off a bit at Brighton Beach, which is a very nice little location. I actually learnt to, uh, to scuba dive there. And, uh, yeah, nice, uh, nice, typical sort of a bay beach. So he's gotten into the water and then started cooling off his muscles in the cool water. And as many of you would have seen during the week, it got a a lot of press coverage because it was just such a bizarre sort of an incident um, he's come out of the water and suddenly found himself bleeding profusely now uh, footballers jumping into the water to cool their legs down is pretty much standard these days it's stock standard practice that all the medicos get their uh, their football teams to do and of course that's something that extends all the way up to AFL level I remember a few years ago Jared Grant of the Western Bulldogs jumped into the water and doing the the, uh, the cool down after a game and uh, got zapped by a stingray uh, got stung by a stingray so it's not something that's without its risks. But uh, unfortunately, what Sam did is he chose to go into the water at night. Now, when you're in the water at night at the best of times, it's something that can be pretty dangerous. And the reasons for that are generally very, very straightforward. You might step on a sharp rock. Um, it might be a piece of broken glass from a you know a broken beer bottle or something that someone's thoughtlessly discarded into the water. There might be a, a hypodermic syringe. You never know. Uh, it's always wonderful to have that, uh, that vision of where you're stepping. Um, and if you don't have that, Always a good idea to don some uh, some booties and uh, and or surf socks. Get around in the water that way to save yourself uh, any inconvenience. But this poor young kid, this Sam Canizay, has gotten out of the water and he suddenly found that he was bleeding profusely. Now he wasn't feeling any real pain, but was obviously pretty alarmed by uh, the the sheer amount of blood that he was losing. And he's uh, he's walked back the short distance to to home, uh, bleeding all over the place. And his dad's quickly zipped him down to the hospital. Now. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen the photographs, they're, they're very graphic. Um, what basically happened was this kid was suffering from heaps of all these pinprick-sized holes. This young man's bleeding all over the place uh, in the hospital waiting room, pools of blood literally forming under his feet, uh, raining off his uh, off his legs. So, of course, the question was, well, okay, what the hell did that? And uh, we know there's some bad stuff that happens uh, from time to time. Back in the 1930, back in 1930, uh, 19-year-old Norman Clark was actually killed by a great white. Just uh, down the road at Middle, uh, Middle Brighton Pier. But we know for a fact that it wasn't a great white, obviously, and we know that it wasn't even a stingray because uh, he sure as hell would have felt that no, ma- no matter how sort of um, how, how numb his legs were, if it was a ray, for example. But what's ended up happening is uh, it's, it's been determined that there is a type of sea lice, or what we now know as, uh, as sea fleas, that have fastened on and started biting this uh, poor young man in the, uh, in the water. Being such cold water, it sort of numbed his legs, so he hasn't felt the pain 
pain as much as you uh, as much as you might expect him to have uh, to have felt. And straight away, it, it begs the question: Well, okay, so he's in the water, he's getting uh, getting bitten. Uh, it, it seems certainly because of the sheer amount of blood that he was losing well after the event. Uh, he went into hospital, I believe, on the Saturday night and he was still in on Monday night and they were still struggling to control the blood loss. So they must have been really making sure they were pumping him full of the electrolytes and all that sort of thing. I don't think he would have needed a blood transfusion. I'm not sure what he's, um, what the medical care involved, of course. Uh, probably put in a drip and all those sort of things just to make sure he's got the, uh, the right levels of fluids and all those sorts of things happening. Uh, but it was a very, very interesting situation because for, for, for a very, very long time, I, like a lot of people, have probably been wondering about sea lice. And um, there, there's always been these stories around of where fishermen grab a pilchard bait and they, they cast it out into the water and they're fishing for a while. Nothing much happens. They bring the bait back in and to their shock, they find that the thing has pretty much been skeletonized. All these sea lice have jumped in and immediately started scavenging the bait. Uh, because of the amount of blood that this guy lost, um, what we think might have happened is there could have been an anticoagulant involved. And when we talk about an anticoagulant, what we're talking about there, of course, is something that uh, stops the blood from clotting. And when that happens, of course, the blood just tends to, to flow quite freely. It obviously helps the animal's feeding strategy. Not unlike leeches, and also uh, the other one that springs to mind, a terrestrial example, is the vampire bats. Now, the vampire bats have another, uh, another chemical weapon in the arsenal. What they use as well as an anticoagulant is almost a painkiller-type substance. It's an, an analgesic, in other words. And when incidents like this one happened to young Sam Canazay, when there's all these, uh, you know, sea fleas or sea lice jumping in and having a feed and producing this pretty graphic effect, straight away it's the sort of situation that gets biochemists around the world quite excited to an extent. Because they look at it and think, wow, okay, so these things have some sort of an anticoagulant. These things might have an, an analgesic, a painkiller uh, in amongst their salivary glands, or if there is, uh, these ones don't produce venom, but other venoms, the one that really springs to mind is the cone shell or cone snail for many uh, for quite a few years now I haven't touched base on it uh, lately but RMIT University were doing some research on the properties of cone shells um, uh, the, the cone shell venom as a uh, uh, looking at it for possible analgesics. Of course, if you're using uh, painkillers like morphine, there's the uh, the added side effects of addiction and uh, some of the stats coming out these days in Victoria and throughout Australia for that matter with opioid-based uh, painkillers is quite alarming. The number of people that die from uh, from these painkillers uh, in terms of uh, you know getting addictions and, and basically overdosing is quite incredible. So there is definitely a, a, a bit of a movement on to try and come up with these alternative drugs and looking at the sea like cone shells cone snails whether they're sea fleas who knows um, looking at those in greater detail can can yield an, a, a very very interesting harvest of, of the potential chemicals that are out there that we can then exploit for our own uh, our own purposes Okay, so um, when we when we consider these sorts of issues, um, the well, okay, young Sam's been bitten, and uh, then his dad has wisely decided to go back down to the seashore and pop some uh, some um, meat into the into the shallows to see what comes, and he's cap succeeded in capturing a whole bunch of these little uh, critters called sea fleas, which up until now I'd never heard of, um, and it's very interesting that Graham Edgar, who's sort of the uh, the godfather, if you like, of um, of uh, taxonomy of Australian marine life. He's got a book by the same title. The second edition, I believe, was released in about 2008. Um, interesting that sea fleas aren't actually listed there. Uh, what we now know is they're definitely uh, what we call amphipod crustaceans. 
Now, amphipod crustaceans, uh, for those of you that haven't seen them, think of a scaled-down shrimp, um, probably a centimetre, so 10 millimetres maximum length. They're very, very small, relatively speaking, and uh, they're, they're like a little shrimp, and they cruise around in the water, and obviously they have a tremendous uh, capacity to scavenge. Now, um, the the terminology sea fleas, um, it sort of really threw me because I thought it was something, uh, I thought it was something totally different, and uh, it was interesting during the week that Mark Rod who's done a, a terrific job in his uh, his role at Parks Victoria on the Facebook page for the Marine Friends Network. For those of you that are interested, jump onto the uh, Facebook page and punch in Marine Friends Network and see what comes up. You'll find the, the page, which is all the Marine Friends groups around the place getting together to have this uh, sort of a, a regular, um, you know, a Facebook feed, a forum, if you like. And he quoted uh, Mark Norman, who was um, at Museums Victoria, currently in the uh, head honcho position at Parks Victoria, and he thought exactly the same thing I did, namely that they were what we call isopod crustaceans, um, commonly known as pill bugs. Now, for those of you that have never met an isopod crustacean or uh, um, a pill bug before, let me tell you something. They're about a centimetre long, and these things I've always felt they make a cockroach look cute. Um, think of a um, think of a what well, like a wood a woodlouse with big eyes on them, and these big pleopods they call them, these little swimming appendages coming off the back, and uh, I've seen them for many, many years at Point Cook Marine Sanctuary and Jawbone Marine Sanctuary uh, in in Melbourne's um, and you know in the western and northern sort of uh, fringe of Port Phillip Bay. There, all over the place, these things. If you go to the shallows and you unearth a, a rock and you move it, you'll basically see all these little uh, critters dart out from underneath. And a lot of the time, they're pill bugs, these little isopod crustaceans. Now, I had a very rude introduction to one of these things a while ago. I saw one cruising through the shallows and it come and sat on my thigh. I'd just taken my wetsuit off and I was um, taking my booties off from memory in the shallows, sitting down on the uh, on the on the soft uh, on the sand, and along comes this little pill bug and it cruises through the water and comes and sits on my thigh and then bang. In went the uh, the biting mouth parts. Um, they've got these sort of piercing mouth parts that uh, they use to jab into your flesh and start taking out the fluids, and it hurt like hell. And I was amazed such a small critter would hurt so much. So I whacked it and, and got it off and probably killed it in the process. Um, but uh, it just really woke me up to thinking, well, these are the these are the sea lice that people are talking about. I've never actually seen um, much of these things in the flesh before. So to to get an introduction like that really uh, it really grabbed me. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a hell of an experience. It's something that I want to do a little bit uh, a, a bit of research on, certainly next year if I possibly can, at uh, Melbourne Polytechnic's Aquaculture Program. Um, that would be a very interesting thing to do, and I'll sort of elaborate on that one a little bit later on. Uh, just after the after the break, in fact, um, I just wanted to play you a little track now. Um, this is uh, sort of my go-to aquatic uh, music CD, if you like. Uh, for, has been for quite some uh, time now. Uh, it's from Ron and Val Taylor's Inner Space album, and it's the uh, the original uh, television score from uh, from that. It was composed and conducted by Sven Lebayek. And here's one that's quite appropriate uh, from for this week when we're talking about this poor poor young fella getting uh, bitten by all these amphipod crustaceans. This is. Danger Reef.
You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. Okay, as I was saying before the break, um, I I should have pointed out too that Museums Victoria, uh, Dr Jennifer Walker-Smith was the one responsible for actually identifying the amphipod crustaceans. And it's important to note here that she hasn't been able to identify it, as far as I know yet, down to species level. And there's a couple of things with that. Uh, Firstly, there are lots and lots of different species. They number in the hundreds uh, of amphipod pod species throughout the world as far as we know. Now it's important to remember that situations like this one, the taxonomy in other words the classification of these particular critters down to species level is sometimes uh, something that's still developing, it's it's unknown and uh, the, the thing that really gets interesting when you look at the marine world is sometimes we take, you know we might have species A and B and we think oh yeah they're the two different species and then all of a sudden we find out a few years later that there's actually species A through to E and then uh, you know A through to G and then before you know it there there are what we thought were two species actually turns out to be a whole plethora of different species and that of course represents our increasing knowledge of the marine environment and the sorts of investments that we might be making in trying to determine uh, what's what in uh, in the marine world. So as I was saying before, I'd had the idea back in um, in 2016 to just start doing a little bit of research on this mongrel little pill bug that bit me just out of fascination. Uh, Zuzara venosa is the uh, the particular species that got a hold of me and, and took a bite. Um, and because of the sheer numbers of these things around the marine sanctuary, when you see uh, things like this in the water in such a high level of abundance or sheltered during the day and then presumably coming out at night to avoid many fish predators, um, what you tend to find is that... Um, uh, with, with such high numbers of these critters, it's fair to say that they've got a pretty damn important uh, role within the marine ecosystem. And that is absolutely the case when we look at things like scavengers. Now, unfortunately, in the case of uh, our young man, Sam Canazo, who's been bitten by the sea fleas, um, there's a situation where they've basically almost become predators in a sense. They haven't eaten a kid, but they've uh, they've started having a nibble on him and they've gone to the live flesh. So the theory is that, yeah, maybe he was standing next to a, a particularly uh, a nice banquet for these scavengers it might have been a a fish carcass or something along those lines but what is absolutely clear is that scavengers play an absolutely vital role in the uh, in the marine ecosystems so it would be fascinating to get a whole bunch of these pill bugs and and they're different from the amphipods that uh, bit poor sam Um, but the idea is that you get these things you put them in an aquarium simulate natural situation um, where you're uh, you've got the marine water and all that sort of thing and you dish up some uh, some feed items to to them and you see what uh, I bet hasn't been really quantified to any great degree. What are the growth rates of these things like? How much feed consumption do they indulge in? What sort of percentage of feed will they eat in a in a certain day in terms of per you know per their body weight? Um, the reproductive rates. What are those like? Um, I'm betting that a lot of those things haven't really been researched. So there's an enormous amount that needs to be done before we really develop that in-depth understanding of um, of the marine environment. What you've got to remember is that when we look at the world of scavengers, um, remember it goes from all levels. It might be a discarded pilchard bait sitting in the uh, in the waters near a, uh, a marine protected area, and then you've got all these little pill bugs going in and basically cleaning it up. So they're almost the, the garbage cleaners of the uh, of the marine environment. But remember that extends all the way up the entire uh, food chain or food web. When we start considering things like a whale carcass, now there's uh, there you might have, for example, a, a thirty to fifty ton. Um, 
blob in, in the water that needs to be broken down. Now, you can imagine what happens if a whale carcass uh, doesn't break down. It's going to be this stinking, rotting mess. So along come your great white sharks, for example, and uh, bronze whalers even, um, in, in the case of rotting, uh, in, in the case of fish carcasses, and they'll start uh, stripping these things down, taking chunks out of them and, and ripping them apart. Uh, thankfully, because otherwise you, you get this horrid situation where most of the uh, degradation and the, the uh, breakdown of, uh, of uh, what you'd call mega carrion or, or carcasses in the marine environment is left to bacteria. And you sure as hell don't want that. If you've got that going on, then that means there's a fair chance that you're going to have an environment where there's uh, you know this putrid, stinking mess. You're going to have all this, um, all this stuff washing up on the shores, um, uh, polluting the beach environment that we love so much. But more importantly, it's going to lead to a situation where you get a certain number of pathogenic bacteria coming in and you're going to see rates of disease uh, start to really increase amongst the um, uh, amongst various segments of the uh, the marine ecological community I suppose you could say now um, it's something that I've never sort of grown out of I've always had this fascination with dangerous stuff and uh, probably a little bit morbid in a sense when we talk about uh, animal attacks on people and all those sorts of things but it is important to remember that what we've got here uh, it, it is obviously pretty alarming what people have seen uh, unfold during the week at Brighton Beach but it's important to remember all it is is another one of those little things we have to look out for um, you know you've got all sorts of things out there in the marine environment uh, stingarees stingrays blue ringed octopus, cone snails, all these sorts of things that could potentially do damage. Uh, often all it is is taking some pretty simple precautions um, to uh, to guard against that. And and the very first thing I'd say in the, the case of the Brighton Beach incident, always try and get in the water during the daylight hours. And as soon as the daylight starts to uh, disappear, um, always a good idea just to get out of the water. Of course, where you really uh, flirt with um, disaster is where you start to get into the water in a state that's, uh, you know, Quite often, people will cool off in the summer months by jumping into the water when they've had a skin full of alcohol to drink. Um, terrible, terrible idea. Don't do it. Um, that that's basically what you've got to remember. Um, my honours thesis that I wrote up on this groovy little critter, a thing called Commonella, uh, a snail that I want to talk to you about in a future show. Which you think, gee whiz, what are we going to be doing here talking about a snail? But I guarantee it's a very fascinating uh, little animal. Uh, in the honours thesis, I wrote this line that I'll quote here directly. It is important to remember that scavengers are a vital part of any ecosystem, be it terrestrial or aquatic. Without them, degradation of organic matter would be left mainly to bacterial sources, resulting in the, in the declining health of many habitats of the ecosystem, due to, uh, many inhabitants of the ecosystem, due to disease. The role of scavengers, therefore, makes them excellent candidates for the continued monitoring of ecosystem health. Now, uh, one thing that's very, very interesting is when we look at um, the presence of scavengers within a marine ecosystem, it's probably a little bit uh, simplistic to say that we can come up with some sort of index that tells us, okay, um, uh, you know, is this marine ecosystem healthy or not healthy? And we're going to base that all on scavengers, the idea of sort of a, a bioindicator, um, if you like, in a, in a sense. Um, probably very, uh, too simplistic. E uh, the study of ecology, anyone will tell you it's quite a complex sort of an exercise. Um, but the question is, well, will the percentage, will the numbers of scavengers in a marine ecosystem increase uh, due to uh, what we call uh, what we could call anthropogenic, uh, you know, man-made influences? Now, where it gets really interesting is with fishing gear, for example. So when we look at fishing gear being, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, recreational or commercial fishing, what you'll see is situations where there's dead or dying critters being introduced into the water column. So what you could imagine is, yeah, that's a situation that's 
it's actually going to cause a situation where, where scavengers, uh, scavenger numbers might well increase over time. Um, and I haven't uh, tracked it down and seen it yet. I've seen a preview that was pretty depressing. And this is a documentary that doesn't feature any spoken words, I'm led to believe. It's called Leviathan. And it's based on the uh, activities of a fishing trawl that's cruising through, uh, catching all these fish, and also getting a lot of bycatch, uh, be them rays or skates and all these sorts of things that are not uh, valued in the market as much as the, the key quarry that they're pursuing, whatever that may be, whether it's cod or whatever. And basically what they're doing, this documentary, a big part of it focuses on the fact that they're going along and discarding all the bycatch and that's just sinking straight to the uh, bottom or floating as it, as it were. And of course that all becomes food for scavengers. Uh, really that one is a big uh, sort of a wake up call to you know what we're doing out in the ocean and the, the plundering of uh, fishery stocks. It could be something that's expected to increase um, you know, uh, the, the levels of scavengers in a population and of course they play a very, very important role. Anyway, that's all we've got time for for Out of the Blue today. Uh, stay tuned next. Uh, we've got Out of the Pan coming up with Sally. And enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon. And please don't be scared about getting into the beautiful waters of Port Phillip Bay or in the marine coastal areas of Victoria. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.